Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Hi, Mercy Commons. We are in part five of our Ruth series, God in the Shadows. And uh, for those of you that um, haven't been around or missed the last couple of sessions, we're at the part in the story where Ruth and Naomi have been um, provided for by the fact that Ruth has been gleaning in Boaz's fields. It's the time of the harvest. And now Ruth is in a position to change her status. And uh, in the past, we've seen that the decisions that Ruth has made have been specifically in order to provide for Naomi. Uh, she's been very selfless in her decision making. She's looked out for Naomi. And now Naomi comes to Ruth with a proposition to actually help her uh, with the rest of her future. This is not just providing a better future for her. This is a matter of survival for Ruth and Naomi. We see the way that Ruth makes decisions is basically not out of a selfish perspective, but out of a sacrificial perspective. And so we're going to pick up the story of Ruth in chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to be reading from the CSB. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening, he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley. And she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and lying there at his feet was a woman. So he asked, Who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Then he said, May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before, because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Does anyone feel a little awkward reading that? Does anyone feel a little confused by that? In fact, some of the detail and um, some of the context is a little odd and disconcerting. We're so far removed culturally from this and generationally that you're not alone if you feel a little awkward by those kinds of statements or even what it looks like. So let me help you with some background in terms of the story. The first thing that we've got to look at is just the idea of the threshing floor. What, what is the threshing floor? The threshing floor is a place where people would take their harvest, whether it was wheat and barley, and it happened to be barley in this case, and they would separate the wheat from the tares or, or the chaff, and they would do the same thing with the barley. But the threshing floor was much more than that. The threshing floor was a place where you worked hard and you partied hard because taking in the harvest was a time of great celebration. And so what they would do is they would gather the harvest and on the threshing floor, they would separate it and they would have a party at the same time. And men would sleep there overnight because they would get up early and they would continue their, their work. And so it was a place during the harvest where work and parting was together. The closest we'll find with that is a kind of a European tradition called a roof wetting. 
And what happens when a building is complete is you get up onto the roof and you, you pour out a beverage of your choice and you make sure that the roof isn't leaking. And that shows that the building is complete and you have a party. So that's what was happening at the threshing floor. Uh, it wasn't just Boaz that were there. There were a number of other men that were involved in the harvest and maybe some other workers. So what about uncovering? Uh, now this may seem a little sexual, but in reality, it's a nonverbal cue that Ruth is giving to Boaz. And she's saying to Boaz, would you not like me to be your wife and to lay with you as someone who would share your bed? Now, the other problem we have is this whole idea of um, secrecy and dignity or decency. And, and so the question we ask ourselves is the covert nature of this operation makes us feel like something immoral or dishonest is happening here. Um, why not do this in the middle of the day where there are witnesses so that no one can accuse you of being improper? I think part of the reason that this is happening at night is in order to give both Ruth and Boaz an opportunity to back out without any humiliation from either party. So now this is not about dating. This is not about arranged marriages. This is not about how you should interact, whether you're dating someone, the level of aggressiveness or not. This is really a picture of God's sovereign provision connected to his word and human agency. And so we're going to be looking at what it looks like to make decisions in desperate times. The caveat that I must bring is that I don't have enough time and this isn't going to be a sermon strictly on decisions. There's, I could do a series on decision making, but what I want to do is pull out some nuggets in terms of what we can learn from this with regards to making decisions in desperate times. Uh, one of the things that we need to be aware of when we're making decisions in desperate times is we have to know our propensity and we also need to know our motives. So you look at Naomi, right? She is a survivor. No question about this. There isn't a situation that a plan cannot solve. No one is looking out for you. You've just got to make sure that you take care of yourself. She knows who the guy is. It's Boaz. She, know where, she knows where he's going to be. She knows when he's going to be there. And she really um, helps Ruth prepare properly for what the next step in the plan is. We've got to be aware of our propensities. For me, I tend to be a little more like Naomi. I tend to be like, okay, well, things aren't working out. I need to make sure that whatever I can do in my control, what's happening, where is it happening, how can I make things better? My wife, Corinne, on the other hand, she says that if you love her, you will tell her what to order at a restaurant and what movie she likes because she hates making decisions and she feels immobilized in situations like that. And one of the things we need to be aware of is what is our propensity? Is our propensity towards apathy or is our propensity towards working in the flesh to make things happen? Because both of those things are going to affect the way we make decisions and how we trust God or whether we don't. Now, what she desired for Ruth is not outside of God's will. That's an important thing for us to recognize. Um, when she said to Ruth, this is what you need in order to gain rest, she was saying to Ruth, um, I've been taken care of by you. You've been so kind to me by providing all of this food. Now it's important for you to be able to establish your future. Decisions are so much easier when there isn't a clear wrong choice. As we said, there's, there's nothing wrong with Ruth desiring to be married or to be part of a family. And our decisions are made clearer if we understand that often there are clear wrong choices. For example, should you date a married man? No, the, clear, the decision is clear. You should not date a married man. Should you date this man? Well, the decision is less clear because it is God's desire for marriage and for you to be married. But maybe it's not this man. So that's when our decisions get a little more difficult.
Now, also, we need to be honest about when decisions benefit us. The truth is that the decision or the plan that Naomi was putting into place was also going to benefit her. The reality is that the kinsman redeemer was related to Naomi, not Ruth. And so Naomi would also have her status in life elevated if Ruth married this man. And it's important for us to know that. I want to challenge us to be honest when it comes to our decision making. There's nothing wrong if a decision you're making or a plan that you're putting in place benefits you. But you have to be honest. There is nothing more dangerous than the hidden self in the context of a decision that affects a lot of people in your life. Philippians 2 verses 3 to 4 says this, Do not do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, there's this not only sense in that scripture where we understand that there's no way that we can make a, a completely pure decision that we are engaged with that we may or may not benefit from. But what's more important is that we are looking to make decisions that are in the interests of others. And both Ruth and Naomi and Boaz have exemplified what it means to take this passage of Philippians and to apply it in the context of decision making. Whatever choice we want to make should be clear to us so that we know that we aren't hiding our own hidden motives from ourselves. And we also can't make whatever choice we want to make and say that God's kindness and grace will fix it. Is God kind? Yes. Is God gracious? Yes. Has he fixed a lot of my mistakes in the past that I've made? Yes. But I don't go into a decision-making situation saying, well, whatever, it doesn't really matter because God will fix it. Because that's not me growing in my Christ-likeness. We need to desire to follow the will of God because what that does is raise our level of relationship with Him. We're not just saying, God, what do you want? We're saying, God, who are you? And as we get to know more the character of God, the questions that we have about what we should be doing or should not be doing are actually easily answered. Now, two people can make the same decision with the wrong motives. And for one person, it can be the right decision. And for another person, it could be the wrong one. That's why we need to check our motives. And that's why we need to understand our propensity. Most of us are not likely to make ungodly decisions. But a lot of us are probably going to make some unwise decisions. And the reason that we do that is because of what James the Apostle tells us with regards to wisdom and choice making. James 3 verse 14 to 17 says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, now listen, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, someone has something that you want or you want to achieve something that you feel that you deserve in your hearts. Do not boast and do not be false to the truth. So it's important if you have jealousy, if you have ambition, you need to express that to God and to yourself so that you know it's in the decision making process. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, James tells us, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Who wants earthly, unspiritual and demonic wisdom? For where does, again, jealousy and where does selfish ambition exist? There will be order and every vile practice. But the wisdom that is from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and, and, and sincere. 
The key about being able to make wise choices is not necessarily in your ability to pass out the information of the different possibilities. The key to making wise choices is knowing whether there is jealousy or selfish ambition in your heart and whether your propensity is to solve things yourself or to put yourself at the mercies of God. The second thing that we see clearly in this is that there's a biblical precedent. In verse 9, it says, So he asked her, Who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Then he said to her, May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before, because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, because I will do whatever you say, since all the people that know you know that you are a woman of noble character. So what were the Kingsman Redeemer's obligations? Now, Sean and Chris are going to deal with that next week, but I want to just give you some highlights. The Kingsman Redeemer's obligations was to restore the rights and to avenge the wrongs of a family. So a Kingsman Redeemer would redeem land that was lost to a family. They would redeem them if they were enslaved. And so if the husband or father died and they were sold into slavery to pay for, for their debts, he would, he would redeem them from slavery. And then he would also... Uh, provide an heir so that that family name could live on. Now, this is not an elaborate trap. This is not a seduction. Uh, this is a way of Ruth showing Boaz that there is legality and propriety to what she is suggesting. This is based on a biblical law. It's covered in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. This is not based on a whim or human ingenuity or fear. Now, we also know that Ruth did have other options. He said to her, look, you could have gone after younger men. I'm assuming Boaz was an older guy. You could have gone after younger men, whether richer or poorer. So there was an option for Ruth um, to marry someone else and to be taken care of. But there wasn't an option for Ruth to be taken care of with a husband that would also take care of Naomi. That's what a kinsman redeemer would have done. And that's why Ruth's decision to submit herself to the idea of a kinsman redeemer shows that she's making decisions not just for her own benefit, but for the benefit of others. Now, the Bible doesn't speak explicitly to every single situation. But the problem is, is that we obsess about decisions that we should make and we obsess whether they're sexual decisions, financial decisions, geographical decisions, relational decisions. And yet the Bible is pretty clear on a lot of those things. You know, the conscience is not something we should wrestle with. Our conscience is something we should submit to. And so even though the Bible doesn't speak to every single situation explicitly, we tend to ignore the wisdom and the guidance that is provided in the, in the Bible, which raises our level of anxiety in the context of decision making. Whereas if we just submit to the word and actually say, well, it seems to be pretty clear here that I shouldn't do this. Well, then the decision is taken care of. The third thing is that we need to allow God to lead the dance. What do I mean by that? Well, the idea of decision-making is kind of a complicated dance between God's sovereignty and human agency. Now, dancing is a whole lot easier when you know who's leading. And when you allow God to lead this dance, not just at the beginning, but the whole way through, it's a much easier prospect. Now, we know that Naomi took the initiative, but it was still up to Boaz and ultimately up to God as to whether this would work. And verse 12 tells us that there's actually um, a, a, a bit of a problem potentially here with this. Because Boaz says in, Ru in uh, Ruth 3 verse 12, Now it is true that I'm a redeemer, but there is also a redeemer that is closer in relation to you. 
And so now we don't know. As the audience, we're like, is Boaz going to marry Ruth? Is he not? But Boaz being the kind of man, he's saying, look, uh, in terms of full disclosure, there is someone that actually is closer to you that should marry you. So we don't know what's going to happen. God's provision or leading is sometimes obvious and very plain. But sometimes God's provision and leading is hidden and surprising. God leads us when we pursue Him, not the outcome to something that we want. He is hiding in the shadows and He's working things out for His glory and for our benefit. I remember when I was stuck in Greece, and many of you know the story, but I was arrested at the airport because I was AWOL and I hadn't done my two years of military service. Karen had already gone to the United States. It was 1998. And I was sitting there saying, God, what do I do? I don't even know how to pray. Should I pray and, and should I um, engage in spiritual warfare because this is some kind of satanic hold to keep me from my wife and my family and what you have planned for us in the United States? Or is this, does this mean that I need to plant a church in, in Greece? I didn't know. And yet I held it openly saying to God, what is it that you want me to do? I told him that this is what I wanted and I was clear because I unburdened my heart. And as it turns out, we ended up here in the United States with another story of God's miraculous leading. Sometimes God's leading is miraculous. Sometimes it's pragmatic. Sometimes it's a check in the mail when you need money. Sometimes it's an extra job when, uh, when you can earn more money. And sometimes it's plain weird. I remember when we came to the United States for our visa interview and uh, we thought that we'd be taken into the back and there would be some kind of office where the person would sit there and interview us. But we came up to the counter um, and we were being interviewed and we didn't even really realize it. I gave the man my ID and uh, when I was 16, I had a pretty delicious mullet. Okay, um, I, I hope there aren't any photos of it, but the reality is, is I had this pretty cool mullet. So I gave him my ID and he looks at me and he looks at the ID and he looks at me and he looks at the ID and I know he wants to say something. So I say to him, bro, you can laugh. It's a pretty bad mullet. He says, bro, we've all had bad mullets. I had one for like six years. Why am I telling the story? Because all of a sudden the nature of the interview changed. He just takes out his stamp and he's stamping our visas to let us into the United States. Sometimes God's leading is just plain awkward, but God is working in the shadows. Sometimes the, the tighter we hold on to to a desired outcome, the less likely we are to respond to God's hand when he's trying to move or shift things. Many of you know who Dan and Marsha you are, but many of you don't know that Dan and Marsha and I took two trips to Myanmar because Dan and Marsha and I felt that they were going to plant in Myanmar. And yet we took two trips out to there and on their third trip alone, there was a prophetic word that was given to them about a blue door. And then they went to Myanmar and then they went to Thailand. And on the border of Thailand, there is a massive border post with a blue door. Now, had they held on super tight to the idea that they needed to plant in Myanmar, we wouldn't have what is a thriving community in Chiang Rai now planting churches into rural Thailand. God had his way. Why? Because they were open-handed. They knew serving God in this context and his will was going out to plant a church, but they didn't hold on too tightly into exactly where this would happen. Now we need to pray for revelation, but in the absence of revelation, we need to default to wisdom. What does that mean, Nick? Well, revelation is God revealing something, uncovering something, something that we couldn't have known with our natural faculties or wisdom. Now, wisdom is the application of our own knowledge. When Paul prays for the Ephesians, this is his prayer, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now, this is key in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know what is the hope he has called you to. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? There's a couple of important things in terms of decision making there. One, if there is no revelation, if God hasn't revealed something to you with a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom or a prophetic word, which God does many times through dreams and visions, and I don't even have time to go into that, but read the book of Acts, then what we do is we default to what God has given us, which is wisdom. We also default to what he's given us, which is our community and our leaders, because the, the greatness of what Paul is saying is here is that our decisions are made in the knowledge of him, in the hope that he has called us to, and the glorious inheritance of the saints. Again, there is this understanding that we aren't just individuals just bouncing around and affecting each other, that because we are brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, our decisions affect one another. We look at Ruth and Naomi and what they did. This was the establishment of the bloodline of King David and ultimately the Messiah. What seems to be an individualistic story about a woman and a mother-in-law being saved from destitution had massive corporate consequences. And so we need to redeem this idea that, that I make decisions that only impact me and that I don't take family into account and I don't take the broader community into account. Our future and our joy is not secured by our intelligence, our beauty, our ability to plan, or how well we smell or how good we look in new clothes. It's also equally not determined by whether we feel like we're none of those things. We are children of God and he has made us his own. And because we are his children, he makes his will clear to us. He makes his, clear, his will clear to us through his word. And he's made his will clear to us through the underutilized under vehicle of our community and leaders. Now, our community and leaders are not just for our own sanctification. And we've preached about this. The one another's can only be completed in the context of a community. How do you love one another, forgive one another, give grace to one another, unless you're in the context of a community? Now, our community is not just a vehicle for sanctification. It's not just a vehicle for mission to be able to go out there and to, um, and to reach the world with the gospel of the kingdom of God. But it's also a, a pro, it provides for us protection and joy. Ruth was told to do all of these things. Ruth was told to wash. She was told to put on perfumed oil. She was told to wear her best clothes. She was told to wait until he was in good spirits. Uh, we don't have to do that. We don't have to do anything to be noticed, provided for, or rescued. We don't have to wait for God to be in a good mood because he has chosen us. We simply need to place our faith in Jesus. We need to repent from living our lives in a selfish, autonomous way and choose to submit to his kingdom, choose to submit to the cross and carry our cross for his glory and for our good. Even though we were filthy, he cleansed us through his blood. Even though we didn't have good clothes, he gave us a robe of righteousness. We are under the shelter of his wing. Ruth risked everything in this situation by asking Boaz to cover her. She risked humiliation. She risked rejection. She even risked being violated. But we have been invited by God. He wants to cover us. He wants to redeem us. We are no longer under the shadow of death. We abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Our future is secure. We are under His wing. Our God is at work in the shadow of His wing. 
Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.